Amen, amen, family. Well, it's good once again to, to be gathered with you all this afternoon. If you have a Bible, we're going to get you to turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be, verses 1 through 6. So Mark 3, 1 through 6. And as you turn there, let me offer another word of prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for how you're already working in our time, how your spirit has already been moving in our time. And God, we pray that you would just continue to do just that. God. Uh, Lord, I pray that through uh, this preaching time, Lord, this moment, Lord, that I would hide behind you uh, and that you would increase and that I would decrease. I pray, Lord, that your word, however you see fit, will do the work in all of our hearts for your glory. And for our good. And Lord, I pray uh, that you would um, yeah, be magnified and lifted high in this time. Glorify yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 1, reads as follows. It says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's word. Amen? Amen. Amen. If I had to summarize this passage, if I had to summarize this passage, it may go something like this. Keeping God's commands should never hinder us from doing good works. Instead, keeping God's commands should compel us to do good works. We say it again. Keeping God's commands should never hinder us from doing good works. Instead, keeping God's commands should compel us to do good works. In other words, as this passage is all about, do good even on the Sabbath. Do good even on the Sabbath. So three points this afternoon, and I'm out your way. Three points. Number one, the attempted accusation. The attempted accusation. That's from verses one through two. Point number two, our Lord fills. Our Lord fills. You see that from verses three to five. And then number three, the plot. The plot. You see that in verse six. You see that in verse six. So number one, the attempted accusation. The attempted accusation. Look back with me for the scene at verse one. Uh, here's what it reads. It says, again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with the withered hand. So this comes off the cuff of Mark 2, 23 through 28, uh, where we saw last week that the Pharisees tried to accuse Jesus and the disciples of working on the Sabbath. So when we come to our passage this afternoon, it's still the Sabbath and Jesus is entering the synagogue. And as he enters the synagogue, there's a man in there with the withered hand. Uh, the last time Jesus entered the synagogue, there was a man in there 
with an unclean spirit. You might recall Mark 1, 21 through 28, where he walked in the synagogue and he teaches. And the folks there are amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at his teaching and the authority by which he teaches with. And there's a man in the synagogue who has an unclean spirit. And we know how the story ended. Jesus commands the spirit to come out of the man, and he does, even showing authority over unclean spirits, over the demons. Now, in this scene, we have a different man with a different challenge. This man in this scene, this story, he has a withered hand. He has a withered hand. Some translations say a shriveled hand or a deformed hand. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Can you imagine what this man went through? Having a withered hand, sitting in the synagogue. Could you imagine what he must have felt? What he must have felt? In many ways, he might have been mistreated. He was probably the content of many jokes of folks going in and out of the synagogue. Probably the content of many jokes. Folks joking on him, clowning him. And he was probably also ashamed every time he lifted his hands to pray, as was the custom, to lift your hands to pray. So then we have the attempted accusation. So Jesus is in there. He's in the synagogue. The man with the withered hand is in the synagogue. And then also the Pharisees are in the synagogue lurking, watching. Look back with me at verse 2. Here's what it says. It says, and they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So the Pharisees are in the synagogue and they're watching Jesus like a hawk. They're watching him. Their eyes are intently on him to see if he would do what? The main reason that they're looking at Jesus is to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Accuse him of what? Well, as we learned last week, once again, for working on the Sabbath, for working on the Sabbath. So during the Sabbath, this was a, a day laid aside to do no work. As we looked at more deeply last week, to do no work. And so they have been trying to catch Jesus and the disciples in a trap since the earlier passage and really throughout chapter two. So they're trying to, to trap Jesus. They're trying to convict Jesus. They're trying to, uh, they, they failed to get a guilty verdict in chapter 2, 23 through 28. But they're trying to dig up more evidence like a prosecutor on a criminal case. They're trying to dig up more evidence in this scene so that they might accuse Jesus. They're looking for every angle. They're looking for any slip up. Any way that Jesus might break their standard their regulations that they have put in place. And in doing so, they disregard what Jesus tells them in the next verse that we'll come to in just a moment. But in other places that I want to uh, point us to in Mark 12, 29-31, a familiar passage, one of the scribes comes up to Jesus and asks him which commandment is the most important of them all. And here's how Jesus answers. Mark 12, 29-31, he says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. So what we've been saying, what we've been learning about the Pharisees over these last few weeks is that the Pharisees are good at upholding their law. They're, they're good at upholding uh, the law, even the defense that they put around the law to keep them from disobeying the law. They're good at upholding those regulations, those standards, but then they downplay loving others, which also shows that they have a wrong outlook on loving God. Now, I don't want to move past this too quick to allow us a chance, not to allow us a chance to process our hearts before God this afternoon with, with a question. Christians, have, have you done this? Have I done this? I mean, just think about that for a second. Think about that question for a second. Let that sink in for just a moment. Have you upheld a rule that isn't a command in Scripture and it's hindered you from loving a church member or a neighbor well? Have you done this? Have I done this? How has this even, as you think about it, how has this even hindered your evangelism efforts? Particular rules, particular standards, particular things that you might have put in place that's hindering you from loving church members well, from loving others well, from loving your neighbors well, for even sharing the gospel. So we're quick to cast judgment on the Pharisees or others we might know without actually processing how we might have done this too. How we might have been guilty of these things too. None of us are exempt from this. And all of us have to be careful that we don't let that pharisaical spirit, if I can call it that, uh, sound like the older saints when they say you have a spirit of this, you have a spirit of that. But if I could call it that, just a pharisaical type of spirit creep up in ways in our lives that prevent us from loving people well. We have to be careful that we don't allow that to creep up in ways to prevent us from loving people well. So just one quick clarification, because sometimes I think we confuse biblical convictions with legalism and the two are not the same. Here's a helpful definition on legalism. It says the conception of ethics that identifies morality with the strict observance of laws or that views adherence to moral codes as defining the boundaries of a community. Religious legalism focuses on obedience to laws or moral codes based on the assumption that such obedience is a means of gaining divine favor. Right? That's what we've been seeing over these last few weeks as we've been studying the Pharisees and thinking about legalism. It's essentially, in short, legalism is a rules-based salvation or works-based salvation. A legalist believes that by obeying commands or obeying regulations, that by doing so and doing those things alone, that they might gain approval from God, that they might gain or receive salvation from God. Then biblical convictions are when someone might have a strong belief or opinion about something scripturally that affects how the person lives, what he or she does, says, and where they might go, etc., etc. It may not be something that they are mandating everyone else does. It's just something that they may have come to from scripture. 
and wisdom processing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's okay. We all have particular biblical convictions that we might have, right? An example of this could be drinking alcohol, right? Some of you may drink alcohol, and that particular person might have a biblical conviction that they should. Not because they believe it's a sin or that you're wrong for doing it as long as it doesn't reach the point where it actually is a sin. But in general, this person doesn't do it and doesn't have an issue with others doing it. Right? Y'all tracking with me? That could be a particular biblical conviction that someone might have. And there are a thousand examples that I can give there, but just, just that one example to, to, to put an example there. And then just one more thought just to add, and then we'll move on. For some of us, we might be doing things that are edgy, right? We might be doing things that kind of cross the line of holiness, but we've labeled it a, a freedom in Christ, right? Something edgy, something that, you know, we might be like, man, this might be wrong, but, you know, hey, I have freedom in Christ. I may have freedom in Christ. And my only challenge to all of us and to me is that we would be careful that we don't abuse God's grace here for what we might call a Christian freedom. When whatever that thing is makes you look and sound more like the world than one of God's children. We have to be careful that whatever that thing is, that we're not abusing God's grace. That we're not abusing God's grace here and calling it a Christian freedom when it actually makes us look more unholy than holy and God calls us to be holy. Amen? Amen. So may we be careful that we don't, yeah, let that pharisaicalness or just realities creep up and prevent us from loving others well. May we, not be, may we be careful not to confuse biblical convictions with legalism Christian freedoms. That's point number one, the attempted accusation. Now number two, our Lord fills, verses three through five. Look back with me at verse three. Here's what it reads. It says, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here, come here. I like how uh, the NLT reads, the New Living Translation, it says, come and stand in front of everyone. Come and stand in front of everyone. Think about how this probably made the man feel, right? Uh, Jesus notices him and he invites him up with him to stand in front of everyone else. So they too would have no choice but to notice him. So Jesus invites him up. The man comes up. And then number two, he questions the critics. So as the man comes up, he stands in front of everybody. They are all being bombarded with, hey, here's the man with the withered hand. And then Jesus questions the critics. Look down at verse four. Here's what the reason says. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Just imagine that scene. Just imagine that scene. He is standing with the man in front of the Pharisees and the disciples are assuming there as well. He's like, I'm going to give you something to watch now. You've been looking for something. I'm going to give you something to watch now. He's probably looking them in their eyes one by one. And then he asked this question, this heart piercing question. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? 
Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? This is a, this is a powerful question. This is a, a powerful question. This is if Jesus was in a cipher, a rap battle, after the bars he just spit, this would have been an oh moment. This would have been that oh moment from the crowd. What Jesus does here is he frames the question in terms of polar opposites, right? Is it lawful to do good or harm, right? Polar opposites, to do good or harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill. Jesus dismantles their silly regulations here. I'm reminded, I won't put the sister on the spot. We were in the gathering earlier and we were talking about silly little this, that, and the third. But, but Jesus dismantles their silly regulations here. Of course you do good on this Sabbath, Jesus is saying. Of course you save life on this Sabbath, Jesus is saying. This should be a no-brainer. This should be something we, we don't even have to question or have to think about, Jesus is saying. I love how Matthew's account puts it in Matthew 12, 11 through 12. He says, Jesus, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And this heart check of a question creates a lot of good discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees. No, it doesn't. We wish. No, they were silent. This silenced them. Look at the end of verse four with me again. It says, but they were silent. They were silent. Now, maybe they didn't respond for a few reasons. I have a few here. Maybe that they didn't respond for us. So number one, they, they didn't know how to respond. After what Jesus has just asked them, they didn't, they didn't know how to respond. Number two, they were silenced as in Jesus's question was a, was a mic drop type of a question. They didn't know what to say. Or three, they didn't want to respond. They didn't want to respond as in their minds and their hearts couldn't be persuaded. They had their minds and their hearts made up about the situation. They were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. And I believe it's the last one, number three that I just mentioned, based on Jesus' response in verse five. Look at verse five with me. This is what he says, or what it says. It says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieve at their hardness of heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand, right? So Jesus looks around at them with anger. Now, this wasn't sinful of Jesus as he couldn't sin. I mean, Ephesians 4, 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Well, Jesus was angry and didn't sin because he couldn't sin because he's God, right? We see here in the Bible, what more so defines a righteous anger that Jesus has here. Like when Jesus uh, flips tables in the temple, when he comes in to see that the people are using the house of worship for their own sinful purposes and not worship. So you think about Mark eleven fifteen. So what we have here is the idea of, of uh, righteous anger that Jesus is presenting. He's angry. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus, as I mentioned just then, that he's also grieved 
with the Pharisees because of their hardness of heart. They are like Pharaoh in Exodus 7 through 12 when he enslaved the Israelites and wouldn't let them be free. Similar, their, their hearts are hardened just like Pharaoh. We, we see there in Exodus 7 through 12 that God hardened Pharaoh's heart to flex his power a bit and to show off his glory. But then we also see in times reading through Exodus 7 through 12 where Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He hardened his own heart. The Pharisees here are hardening their own hearts, which shows they have wrong beliefs about God. That they don't see him as the God of grace and mercy and compassion as Sister Nikki read before the sermon. But this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. He is God, full of grace, mercy, and compassion. Amen. He's also full of power, as we've been seeing. And as this passage continues to show us here. Look back with me at verse 5 as I was just reading. It says, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So Jesus here full of power, full of compassion, full of grace, full of mercy. He heals the man with the withered hand. He heals the man. He completely restores his hand. This is who the Pharisees continue to be confronted with. As we've seen from the beginning of Mark, when we first started studying the book, this is who they have been confronted with. This Jesus who teaches with all authority, unlike the scribes. His teaching is not like the scribes. His teaching is one of who he is. He's the son of God, of authority, and who also has healing power and the authority to cast out demons and also one who is able to forgive sins. This is who the Pharisees have been battling with since the beginning of Jesus' coming on earth, being born and walking on earth and showing himself, starting his ministry. This is who they have been combating from the very beginning. This Jesus, who is the promised Savior, who is the Savior that they were needing and hoping for and longing for, but the Savior that they didn't think would be. They were looking for someone else. They were looking for something else, not this Jesus. So this is the Jesus who they are confronted with. And this is the Jesus non-Christian here who you are also confronted with. The same Jesus who teaches with all authority, who has the authority and the mercy and grace to save, to forgive sins. This Jesus is the one we want to hold out to you this afternoon and ask you do you know him? Do you know him as your savior? Agree with God and his word in that you are a sinner. That you were created to worship God, but you have fallen. We have all fallen. We have turned aside from God and his ways, and we've turned to our own ways and said our ways are better and trusting in our ways, and trusting that, man, we know how to do this thing. And because of that, because 
we have trusted in our own ways because we we think that we know what life is and what life is all about because we have fallen and disregarded God's love and his grace. If we were to die in that state, the Bible says that we'll be eternally separated from God and that he would judge us and his judgment would be just. And it will be due to us because we are sinners separated from him. But the good news is that God didn't leave us there. He sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life that none of us could ever live. A perfect life, a sinless life, a life in complete devotion to God, never breaking the law, never breaking the command. Fully living and obeying God. But this Jesus was treated as a criminal. He was sent to the cross. Now he went there willingly and willfully to die your death, my death, the death that we all deserve on the cross because Jesus had no sin for which he had to die for, but he died for all of our sins. And he was crucified. He died and he was buried in the grave, but the grave couldn't hold him. On the third day, he was resurrected from the dead, offering salvation to all who would turn from their sin, to turn from their ways of doing life, to turn from their ways of thinking, man, I got this. I can do this. I can make it to heaven on my own merit. I can be a good person and make it to heaven if I just do good works to turn away from those things and to turn to him alone by faith, by belief, by putting all of your eggs in his basket, trusting in what he has done alone. And the Bible says, if you do that, then you'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll be cleansed completely of all of your sins, not based on your works, my works, but on another's works, on Jesus's works alone. We want to offer him to you this afternoon. This Jesus, who we are studying about, this is the Jesus who says, come to him. Come to him, believe upon him. If you're here and you have not trusted in Jesus for salvation, man, it will be our joy to talk to you more after the service to discuss further what that might mean for you to turn from your sin and turn to Christ by faith. We implore you this afternoon, we plead with you that you might turn from your sin. Trust Jesus. Trust him. He is worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your praise. So number one, the attempted accusation. Number two, our Lord fills. And lastly, a little shorter, number three, the plot, the plot. Look back with me at verse six. Here's what it reads. It says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So this section here in chapter three, verses one through six, closes with a more sad and prideful moment. Whereas instead of the Pharisees swallowing their pride, humbling themselves before God. As Sister Nikki was saying earlier in, in worship that Jesus was, that God was there, present among them. They would have humbled themselves before God. Instead, they puffed themselves up and they continued to respond sinfully. 
Pharisees leave the synagogue furious with what just went down. And not just this occasion, but all the occasions that we've been studying in chapter two as well. Furious in how, man, Jesus has been showing who he is, that he is God with all authority in teaching, with all authority in healing and casting out demons and forgiving sinners. And also, as the Pharisees wouldn't be caught sitting with tax collectors and sinners, man, Jesus befriends sinners. He befriends them. So they are furious with what just went down and, and previously. Their anger leads them to do the unthinkable. To do the unthinkable. One, they, they team up with the Herodians. So the Herodians were supporters of the Herods. So the Herodians were political leaders during the lifetime of Jesus. Uh, they were wealthy and they, they had power. You may recall when Jesus was born, his parents were fleeing with him. Uh, away from Herod, probably Herod the father, who was trying to kill him, trying to kill baby Jesus. During this time, the Herodians are probably in support of Herod the son. So again, the Herodians were political leaders, wealthy, had power, had pool. But something else that we, we learned about the Herodians and the Pharisees is that they hated one another. The two, the Herodians and the Pharisees were not on cool terms. They were not clicking it up. There was not peace between the two entities, the two parties. They hated one another. But because of their common enemy, Jesus, they decided to put their beef aside in order to join forces against Jesus. Their hate for Jesus produces a common interest to join teams with one main goal, destroying destroying Jesus. So this is what they set out to do. Their meetings are consumed with thinking about how to destroy Jesus. They're plotting. They're lurking. They're watching. They go into the locker room together and study the film so far of how Jesus has been beating them so far. They look at how he's been teaching, his unmatched power, his way with the people. And they're like, man, how do we beat this guy? How do we beat this person? Little did they know, but they'll soon find out, as we have found out, that he's unbeatable. He's unbeatable. And his record is undefeated. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is showing himself to be before the Pharisees, before us today. The attempted accusation, our Lord feels the plot. We close this in prayer as Nikki comes back. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for um, yeah, the goodness of your word and the truth found only in your word, the power that is in your word, and uh, the beauty that is in your word. Your word uh, saves. Your word sets free. Your word delivers. Your word heals. And we praise you for your word that you have um, spoken to us through the Bible. Um, we, man, just to think about that for a second, I am just mind blown again that, God, we have your word. That you have spoken to us. And we get to crack it open and to hear from you 
during a Sunday gathering and during the week when we spend time with you, we get to hear your voice. And we get to communicate to you through prayer like I'm doing now and hear from you from your word. And so may us, Lord, as Christians, may we not take that for granted. And every day, every moment, uh, we have access to you, 24-7 access to you through the Son, by the Spirit, in order to commune with you. And so God, I pray that uh, as we have just been thinking about and learning this afternoon about who Jesus is, he is God, he is one filled with grace and mercy and compassion and truth. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for you sending him to live, to die, to rise in our place for our justification and then sending your spirit so that we might be sanctified, so that we might, uh, your spirit might indwell us and live in us and through us as we seek to live our lives for your glory. One day we'll be glorified. One day we'll be glorified with you we long for that day. And we pray until then, Lord, help us to remain Bible people. Help us to remain missional people. Telling others about what we heard today and telling others about your good and great gospel. So send us out this afternoon to proclaim your name for your glory, for our good, for our joy for the advancement of your gospel. Help us, Lord, to to live lives worthy of your gospel. Help those who may not know you come to know you through your good gospel. The best news that one could ever hear. Draw all of us to yourself more and more. We love you. We adore you. Help us to enjoy you. That's what we were created for. To know you and to worship you and to enjoy you. God, I pray that we would do just that, even the more this afternoon. Help us to enjoy you. Help us to go into this week enjoying you, who you are, and what you've done. We pray all of this in the matchless and mighty name of Jesus.